name is Daniel T, and welcome to the SA Fireside Podcast. Each week, we bring you another fireside chat with an old-timer discussing the questions and topics we compiled surveying the world of SA. You can visit us on safireside.com to hear all the recordings. And if you have any questions or feedback, you can email me at daniel at safireside.com. Sexaholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop lusting and become sexually sober. There are no dues or fees for SA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. SA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution, does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sexually sober and help others to achieve sexual sobriety. It's our hope and our goal that this recording will help those old and new to the program to gain more tools that will help further their recovery. And so, without further ado, it's time to hear today's Fireside Chat. So welcome to our very first Fireside Chat. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure to sit down with David and hear his story and hear his wisdom, his many years of wisdom in this program. Uh, David is a person who's very close to my heart. Um, we speak nearly daily. And um, here's David's uh, short bio in his own words. David M. first attended Sexaholics Anonymous on August the 2nd, 1988 in Nashville, Tennessee. That remains his sobriety date, one day at a time. While his reason for attending was to avoid another divorce and loss of family, he stayed because of the freedom and serenity he finds in 12-step recovery. He's been actively involved in service work at the local and international levels, including setting out the International Office of Sexaholics Anonymous in Tennessee and working extensively on our literature. He and his wife now live in Portland, Oregon. So uh, without further ado... Here is the very first essay fireside chat. Uh, thank you very much, David, for, for joining us today on the very first fireside chat. Um, it's a very special moment for me. I've been building up to this and looking forward to this. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, so um, what, what I really want to do uh, with this fireside chat is to have a chance for, uh, for us in SA to meet the old timers of SA. Um, and I want this to be a resource for everyone, but especially for newcomers coming into the program. We compiled a lot of questions around um, early sobriety and uh, very basic things that people ask when they walk in the door. Um, and I would really hope that this is going to be a helpful, useful resource for them to listen to in the future and for, for all of us to hear. So really, thank you for joining. What I thought would be good to begin with would be if we uh, start with a little bit of a, a classic, um, uh, you know, a classic qualification. Uh, five minutes, what it was like, five minutes, what happened and five minutes, what it's like now. And then we can... Uh, move organically into the the questions and and have a little you know a little chat, um, but uh, so I'll I'll pass the floor over to you and thank you so much again for joining. And being our said, first. I'm glad to be here, and and thinking of what it was like, um, 
there are things that happened when I was very young that have never left my awareness. Um, one was exploring a housing development uh, when I was four or five years old. And I did go off and, and explore things like that. And getting caught in the uh, dugout foundation of the house without any clothes on. And my uh, parents found me. Um, another thing I remember is at age five in kindergarten being disciplined for looking up girls' skirts by standing under the slide as they climbed up the ladder to the top. Another was uh, being sexual with other boys. Uh, we were nude. I don't know that we ever had any actual intercourse, but nude in the forest, and we were found by the mothers of one of the other kids. Um, and another thing that it was like uh, when I was eight was um, trying to get a, a girl whose uh, family were friends, her parents were friends of my parents, and she was over at the house, get her to undress uh, for me, which didn't happen, but I tried. And then the big thing uh, that in some ways I've never recovered from um, is at age 10, discovering masturbation. I can remember uh, the bedroom I was in, uh, in our house and being in bed and and remembering what I did and, and the feeling of the orgasm and and it was really, really powerful. Um, my first uh, sex and uh, fantasy sex object was my mother. And then I had great shame about that. And so I transferred it to a, a mother of a, another uh, person in the neighborhood. Um, and none of it was real in terms of behavior, but all of it was real in terms of its effect on me. I remember when I was 13, uh, being in a health class, and we had an anonymous um, box uh, box to put anonymous questions in. And uh, my question was, uh, how much masturbation is too much? Because by that time, I was masturbating basically daily. And the uh, teacher's answer when he got to the question was, uh, you can't masturbate too much unless you hurt yourself. And um, I think that was the last time I thought about stopping masturbating until I came into this fellowship at age 42, so some 30 years later. And um, being really focused on sexual arousal and and uh, wanting to uh, engage in petting and sexual behaviors with girls I was dating um, in high school, I was still um, so caught up in the fantasy and um, I probably used some pornography such as Playboy, that kind of thing at the time. Nothing probably more dramatic than that. Our next door neighbor uh, where I lived subscribed to Playboy and um, I would babysit for the family from time to time and would look at the Playboys then. And uh, I suppose there were other things. All I really remember is that I was masturbating. I always, I realized at some point that I always knew when I'd last masturbated, when I was next going to masturbate, and how it all felt, and and I thought that was a little weird. But the guy had said, unless you hurt yourself, it was okay. So uh, I didn't worry about it. Um, my first uh, wife and I uh, had sex uh, when I was in college, and uh, I decided that meant we had to get married. Um, I thought I was telling myself I was being chivalrous by getting married, but the reality was I was trying to guarantee I could be sexual. Um, and um, we uh, had an active relationship. We did um, end up getting married and about a year later. And um, 
and then went off and were living in the South. And there was a, a book that was popular at the time about group marriage, and both of us read it. And we ended up, uh, each of us having affairs, but it, I, looking back on it, it was more my initiative. Uh, I, While my wife went along with it, uh, for whatever reason, um, um, I was the one who was uh, the most active. So what it was like was I just had a long progression beginning somewhere around age four of things that had sexual uh, behaviors and content, and uh, they affected me uh, more and more powerfully and more and more of my uh, life focus was on coping with sexual arousal and responding to sexual arousal. Um, that marriage ended uh, in part because of the affairs um, and not after we had, we had had acquired two kids. Um, and I was really shaken by that. Although uh, because of the occupation I had chosen to go into, uh, my wife had actually told me before we were married that she didn't want me to be in that occupation. So in one sense, I was plowing ahead uh, in a relationship where I'd been told in advance it wasn't going to work, and uh, which was true for her. Uh, it just didn't fit her uh, personality and the kinds of things that mattered to her. Um, and um, But during that time, while we were in the process of separating and then getting divorced, uh, there were a regular series of affairs. And then um, I became engaged to a woman with whom I had had an affair uh, during my marriage. And then I realized that was a mistake for various reasons, um, all of which involved sex in some way or another, actually, and uh, ended up uh, getting involved with um, the woman to whom I've been now married 44 years. Uh, and uh, and so she was another affair I was having um, and finally got divorced and uh, went off uh, pursuing my career. And uh, my wife and I got married um, she had a child and I, uh, we had a child together uh, not long after that. And, and I really resolved that the affairs would stop. Uh, but two years uh, into our marriage or three years, somewhere in that time span, um, the affairs began again and continued. And I remember um, about a year before I came into Sexaholics Anonymous, for some reason, I made a list of women with whom I'd acted out. And I was terrified because I hadn't realized that the frequency had picked up um, quite a bit, how often it happened and and the number of, of people involved. My wife, uh, what it was, that's what it was like, what happened. Um, my wife had had enough. Um, I had put her through a lot of trauma with uh, the affairs and, and um, really the lack of attention being constantly distracted. Um, and uh, one day she confronted me over something she had seen. Uh, it wasn't actually an acting out situation, but um, it had all the elements of one. And uh, that next uh, night, she said she wanted a divorce. And the next day, we went to see a counselor that we had seen twice, I think, before then, once or twice. And, um, and that counselor, after listening to me say, I just need to be involved with more than one woman at a time, said, well, you're a sex addict. And uh, and as soon as she said it, um, first of all, I got goosebumps. And secondly, uh, I knew she was right. Uh, I had no doubt that she was right. And for various reasons, uh, I was aware of sexual addiction, uh, mostly because of an article in Time magazine in 1974, 
uh, that is mentioned in our white book, actually. And I have a copy of it somewhere in my files. I haven't found it for several years. Uh, I know it's there somewhere. And um, and I, I had always been attracted to, uh, well, to AA and 12 steps. So not I'm not an alcoholic, but for professional reasons, I, I was involved in that. And, um, and I knew that sexual addiction was uh, something that was sort of possible. And as soon as she said it, I realized not only was it possible, it was me. And I went to my first meeting that night um, on the third floor of a Methodist church in Nashville, Tennessee. And there were four or five other men there, um, one of whom knew me. So I got over the anonymity part pretty quickly. I didn't have any. And, um, and as soon as I heard them talk about getting drunk on masturbation, that sealed it for me. Um, and also about being powerless over the acting out, uh, that it just happened. And that uh, between those two things, I knew that this is where I belonged and it's the problem I had. It wasn't until some time later that I realized another advantage I had uh, that was present at that first meeting is that I had tried everything I could imagine to stop and including getting help from other people as well as changing things myself. And none of it worked. Um, and um, I didn't have to run through a list of things I hadn't tried yet because um, I'd, I'd done it. Um, and I remembered the results and namely none of it worked, as I said. Also, uh, we were reading the solution at that first meeting, or maybe it was the second meeting, but I believe it was the first. And, and we came to that last line. We were making the real connection. We were home. And I started crying then because I realized that uh, I had been trying to uh, find a home or a place where I belonged uh, with all of my craziness on the inside, all of the sexual focus and all of my other talents and skills and deficits and character defects and whatever, and, um, and find a place where I belonged. And, um, and I think I cried a lot for the first several years. Um, a lot of the things I did were very sad, and I was very sad to have this disease. Um, and uh, so that's what happened. And I became very, I knew because of um, my professional connections with AA, I knew uh, that 90 meetings in 90 days uh, was the best thing to do. And I came up in the high 70s, uh, had some conflicts, but it happened to be a time of year where I could be fairly flexible in my schedule and I took full advantage of it. And I'm glad that we had uh, we had six meetings a week. Um, and as I've sometimes said, other times I've spoken, uh, I didn't know until much later that uh, per capita, that was the most meetings in the entire world. Um, there were more meetings in New York and in Chicago and, and LA, but uh, they also had much bigger populations. And uh, I was just fortunate to get sober there. I was fortunate to get sober uh, in a city where SA had been founded by two people who had come out of AA and uh, very much based their sobriety and recovery in the 12 steps and 12 traditions. And uh, that was a gift. Um, so that's what happened. Um, I kept going to meetings. Uh, I would try to uh, get to a meeting every day, if at all possible. And um, and then I started doing the readings. Uh, our white book looked different at that time, but I discovered that if I just got read it through and then got to the end and started over, uh, that worked. And we had a newsletter that would come out and our pamphlet, um, 20 questions pamphlet. So 
I was using the literature and got involved in being our, I handled uh, literature for our, our group. And, uh, and that began my service work in SA. Um, and that continues uh, to this very day. The, um, what it's like now, um, the, I, it took me quite a while to realize how grateful I was to be a sexaholic. I knew, as I said, at my first meeting that I had a home, I had a place I belonged. And that was such a tremendous gift. Um, what I didn't know is, uh, even though it comes to us from AA, actually, um, is that it took everything I did to get me to a point of being willing to work this program. Because as my uh, sponsor um, said, David, the only thing you have to know about your higher power is it's not you. And 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 to um, come in, and I had came in as a lot of people do as an atheist um, or an agnostic. I came in as an atheist. Um, I needed to find a power greater than myself. And I found it in the uh, writings. I found it in the meetings. Uh, I found it in the old timers. And the definition of old timer then was three years sobriety, by the way, uh, because that was the criteria for being in our first member stories book. Um, and uh, and I was not in it. <laughs> I didn't have anywhere near three years at that point. Um, and um, and then I also found it in developing a spiritual life, which was ironic, uh, given that I had uh, centered a lot of my life uh, professionally around a spiritual life. Uh, it just wasn't a, a spiritual life that worked. And um, I've often said to people, we all have to in, in our program. We all have to wrestle with these uh, those italics that are in the steps. Uh, God, as we understood him, uh, which is in steps three and 11. And none of us come in with an understanding of a higher power of God that's working for us, including me when I came in. Um, no God wasn't working for me. And, um, and I had to come to terms with something uh, better, uh, better that worked for me, in other words. And uh, as the AA a Big Book says, this is a set of, or 12 and 12, I guess, this set of principles, spiritual in nature which if practiced as a right way of life, enabled the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole or something very close to that. And, um, and I realized that not only did I need to have that um, fairly quickly, like within two or three years, I realized that I actually wanted it. And, and what I wanted was the serenity that came with that. Uh, although in the beginning, there wasn't necessarily a lot of serenity. And um, and then the freedom that came with that. Um, I before I came in, um, my disease had progressed not only the affairs I mentioned, but progressed to the point of of um, hallucinating uh, about women being available for sex and uh, constantly planning and recovering and all of that, and slowly increasing the intensity of my uh, fantasies. Uh, getting into uh, spanking and bondage kinds of fantasies, which I didn't act on. I just used them to uh, arouse myself. And uh, and we kept adding things of that sort of cross-dressing um, to say nothing of the actual affairs. In fact, the affairs became kind of inconvenient uh, because they involved other people and their feelings and getting caught and all those things. And uh, the freedom, I didn't have any freedom in that. and. Um, Two things that I've never forgotten that happened as I began to experience that freedom. Uh, one uh, was that I had a lot more time available, <laughs> and, which was good. There were things to do, 
uh, I had more time for the family. I had more time for my occupation. Uh, I certainly had time for essay. And secondly, um, that I um, was had a message to communicate to people who were struggling in their own lives, maybe not with an addiction, just with stuff that happens to people. Uh, I had a message to uh, share with them that suddenly had some uh, meat uh, contact. I'm a vegetarian, so I guess I don't want to say meat, but uh, it had some contact to it, um, content to it, and people responded to it. Uh, I was in a situation where I got to share things like that, both individually and and into larger groups uh, about how people were living their lives and what kinds of things make it go better for us. And and uh, suddenly there was a level of response that was totally unexpected by me. And uh, and it was just because I finally had something to say. <laughs> and more importantly, perhaps I had something to live. Um, I was actually living a different life. I was a, a someone in my profession uh, challenged me early on over my behaviors. And, and I said, well, I have changed everything in my life. And, uh, and that's the best I can do. Um, and I don't think he understood in the least what I had just said to him. Uh, some things happened later that suggested he didn't anyway. Uh, and we, I did understand what it meant, uh, that I really did have uh, to change everything in my life. Uh, I stayed very involved in uh, Sexholics Anonymous. Um, internationally and in our literature as well as locally in meetings and regional affairs and um, and that's been the service element that has uh, kept me going uh, i've always had a sponsor uh the person who answered my first phone call on august 2nd 1988 uh, became my first sponsor he left the program i switched to an old timer then who uh, is still my grandfather's sponsor to this day and he was my sponsor until, for various reasons, he became unavailable. And I moved to his sponsor and then moved to the next sponsor, hit the sponsor sponsor. And and um, I finally had my current sponsor a little over a decade. And it's just been a wonderful relationship. I think that's enough about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Thank you so much, David. Um, I really appreciate you sharing that story. And, um, yeah, it's... Uh, it's good to hear it all in, in, in that one segment, in, in a clear segment. You uh, you did end up, I, I understand you did end up in the second uh, version of Member Stories uh, when they re-released yes. it. Yes. Do you remember the name of the story? What? Do you remember the name of the story? keeps getting better. It That's keeps getting easy. better. <laughs> so anyone listening and has access to the uh, essay Member Stories, you can read it. it keeps getting better. And that's David's story. So as I said, we we compiled um, a lot of questions um, from newcomers and and people in the program for a while, um, and I just want to go through a few of those different questions and uh, we'll try and make it as organic as possible. I think the the, the first segment that is is really about lust because a lot of people come into the program and they don't have a clue. They never thought their problem was lust. They thought their problem might have been masturbation or or even probably that was the last thing that they thought was their problem. They probably thought it was all the other stuff outside of masturbation that was their problem. And then they walk into the rooms and all of a sudden they're told that, no, your problem is lust. So I guess the first question is, what is lust um, for you? So when you ask the question, the memory that comes into my mind is uh, Jess L., who was, um, along with Roy, uh, 
the two people primarily responsible for spreading SA around the United States and uh, and around the world eventually. And uh, Jess would tell the story of when he uh, was told by his wife that he either had to get involved in sexual addiction recovery or they had to end their marriage. And he called a guy who uh, was an SA at the time, didn't end up staying, but he was there when Jess needed him. And, and Jess said that as soon as the guy said, Jess, it's what's in your head that's killing you. It's the lust between your ears that's doing the damage. And Jess identified with that immediately. And as soon as I heard that, I also identified with it immediately. Jess defined lust as asking the world to be different than the way God's providing it. And um, that was a later realization. Um, but it definitely uh, fit my experience. Namely, I would I was totally swept up in fantasy. I had been at least since, by age four, I was totally swept up in it. So sometime before that, it started. And it was these fantasy world, fantasy life, fantasy scenarios, fantasy dialogues, fantasy for sexual arousal um, that uh, hooked me. And so it was freedom from that uh, that I needed. And it didn't have much to do with the actual behaviors. Um, the uh, One of the things that I think we probably borrowed this from Alcoholics Anonymous, but it's ours too, is that acting out is the last thing we do on a slip, not the first. Um, as uh, they say in AA, if the train's going to run you down, it's the engine that does the damage, not the caboose. And um, the um, so intervening on lust, and then the understanding of lust that comes to us through the 12-step programs uh, totally fit my understanding. And that is, I have a disease of self-centeredness, selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of all our problems. And that's precisely um, what I, as soon as I heard that and connected it to lust, I knew that was me, that for whatever reason, and I can go back and supply the psychology if I needed to, um, I needed to sort of drop out of the world and, and retreat into my own uh, private um, fantasy world between my ears. And, and, uh, and that's the lust. And, um, and then I, if it had just stayed that way, it would come and go or something, maybe it wouldn't have mattered, but that's not what happens uh, with me. Um, if I start lusting, it sets off that cascade of cravings, uh, just as Dr. Silkworth, Silkworth describes in the A Big Book. And um, and once the cravings are underway, it's just a matter of time until I act out. Um, sometimes I can sort of put it off uh, for a while, but uh, in general, uh, it's just uh, the cravings just demand to be satisfied. And of course, they never are satisfied. Um, when people dealing with drug addiction uh, often talk about they're always chasing that first high. And I realized after I came into SA that I was chasing that first high of uh, uh, my first uh, time I masturbated uh, and the uh, alcoholics frequently can remember their first drink. And that's my equivalent of that. Um, I have an addiction to lust. And that is if I lust, if I do engage in thinking about the world as being different than the way it is. Um, and that's a broad scope, you might add. Um, then it sets off. Uh, I start isolating. Uh, I start uh, pushing people away, uh, maybe not physically right away, that'll come eventually, but um, 
you know, like alcoholics will talk about, you know, if they want to do some more drinking, they just pick a fight with their wife or their husband. And uh, I would do my own equivalent of that, or I would find some excuse that needed my time. Uh, but it was always time to develop the uh, lust fantasies. So do I still lust? Yes, I'm just vulnerable to it. I didn't ask for that vulnerability. It's just the one I got. Um, when I'm honest about it, then I have the freedom and the serenity that I mentioned uh, earlier. Um, it's really interesting because um, just connecting those two dots right now, when I'm thinking that what do I do in, in my lust? I objectify other people, which is a world of fantasy. People are not objects. Um, and that's expecting, and, and that's changing the world to be what I want it to be, which is exactly where the lust is. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's accepting that I am a person who lusts and, and has that selfishness, self-centeredness that is the doorway to the freedom. So I'm glad to go through it. So I guess like the, the big book says, lust is not the root of my problem. Uh, the selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of my problem. That's my experience. Yeah. I identify with that completely. Okay, so this this next section is all about a, a topic that me and you have discussed quite a few times. Is that the, the fact that I'm different? Um, you've told me a couple of times the uh, the story that Clancy says maybe you'd like to give it over. Um, I mean, the questions all around here that I you know the grouped into this group were really you know does this program work? Could it really work for me? You know, is there really a hope for someone like me? You know, why me? Um, if people were as bad as me, you know, or, you know, how how am I ever going to get the pain and the relief the, the relief from the pain that you know would essay work for me? There's all very similar questions. So, um, yeah, does this program really work, and could it really work for me? So, there are a lot of directions to go with that question, but let me just start with the first uh, two uh, sentences how it works chapter five rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program and that is my experience um uh, my understanding is in the editing of the aa big book uh it used to say never have we seen a person fail i don't know if that's true or not uh it says rarely uh, and in fact, uh, people who want to thoroughly follow this path, in my experience, do get better. Um, on the other hand, it is a simple program, and that's the problem, uh, because all of us come in with complex responses to that. Uh, why am I, I'm, how I'm different? Uh, Clancy I, uh, the AA speaker who actually just recently uh, died, um, said every army uh, needs a flag and the uh, SA army or AA army needs a flag. And it's a very simple flag. It's simply um, a plain color with some words on it. And the words on it uh, are, but you don't understand, I'm different from you. And we all rally under that flag. We wave that flag uh, uh, over our heads to show we belong to the army. Uh, of course, it's not a solution for getting well or for dealing with our problems. Um, and uh, it's identifying, I, I tell people this mostly so I hear myself say it, uh, that it's identifying with other people's uh, emotions, other people's fears, other people's histories, uh, what it was like for them, what happened and what it's like now. Uh, that's where the hope comes in this program. And uh, if I start comparing, uh, if I, how am I different from you, um, someone else? 
Uh, it doesn't matter at what level. It could be uh, in dealing with the sexual addiction, but it could also be in just dealing with how I'm a member of society or a father or um, a co-worker or whatever. Um, as soon as I'm different, uh, then I'm disconnected because I'm separating myself from other people. The questions uh, that you uh, ran down there um, have a common element. Uh, is there hope for me? Uh, does anyone struggle as much as I do? Um, and um, I really have it bad. There was really lots of pain that I had. And and that's uh, one of the hardest. It, it, the simple program is to change the I to the we. Um, the first word of the 12 steps is we. We admitted we were powerless over lust. After that, the we is actually not repeated very often, but it's implicit in every uh, one of the 12 steps. And, and um, as long as someone is stuck, and pe most people do get stuck, by the way. It's, this is not <laughs> a good or bad thing. It's just the way it is. Um, most, as long as someone is stuck on how, how am I going to get out of this, uh, they're just going to stay stuck. And, and I don't wish that on anybody. Uh, it's not good news, of course. At the same time, um, it's making that transition from I to we that, that does work. And the we can be what's the literature say, what's the group say, what's my sponsor say, um, what is uh, my awareness of God say, although as the uh, uh, 12 and 12 and Big Book make clear, uh, it's always a good idea to check out what you think God is telling you, because uh, our uh, propensity to uh, sort of imbue that with our own self-centeredness is pretty strong. Um, as long as we are making that transition, though, things uh, get better. And uh, people call me up and say, I can't get sober. And I have the same stock response to them every, well, it's not identical, I suppose, every time, but it's the same basic response, which is, you're right, you can't get sober. Uh, SA is not for a program for people who can choose to get sober because uh, they wouldn't need us. Uh, they can uh, just make a decision to stop their behaviors and to change their attitudes and they'll be fine. Uh, and I've had seen many people come into SA and do that. Um, while most people don't stay in SA, not everybody leaves for the same reason. And uh, a lot of people leave because they discover that um, they're not really addicts. They um, have the ability to stop. An addict does not have the ability to stop on their own volition. And um, so that's, you know, if someone discovers they can stop uh, and they go ahead and change their life and go about <laughs> live things in a good way, more power to them. That transition also, though, from I to we is the thing most people don't want to do, including me in my turn, um, because uh, this desperation quality that in my case set in really early is that people don't really know me. If they did know me, they would reject me. And my thoughts are really bizarre uh, to have all these thoughts about sex all the time. and. Um, and so if, if, if I ever shared that with anybody, I'd be rejected. And that fear of being rejected and being humiliated uh, is uh, really strong for everybody. And it keeps us from engaging. And yet it's uh, walking into those fears that gives us freedom, gives us a different set of choices. Um, and uh, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Uh, is also a good illustration of the, one of the things that attracts me most powerfully to 12-step recovery. And that is the only stuff that's in the book 
uh, only materials that are written with them uh, in a big book, 12 and 12, and to the same degree in our literature, um, are things that work. Uh, that's why we have them there. Uh, these are things that worked for somebody, and, and they often work for a lot of somebodies. And um, rarely have we seen a person fail is not some idealistic prescription. It's just a description of what works if someone thoroughly follows this path. And I've discovered that really is true. For me, I think it's true for those of people I've talked to over the years. And um, if I'm willing to move out of the driver's seat is an image that I like to use. Uh, if I'm willing to uh, turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand him, or as we, excuse me, I misspoke, as we understand him. Um, because my own concept of God is always going to have an element of, God, get me out of this mess, please. And uh, I tell people that no matter how politely expressed, uh, giving God orders is not a working <laughs> proposition. Uh, and we, though, together can uh, help each other along uh, on this road. Um, everybody comes into SA, as I did. Uh, first of all, I'd been suicidal. Uh, a good counselor who otherwise had other problems. He, I think he had our disease, too. Uh, but he got me through the suicidal times. and. Um, because I really was desperate over engaging behaviors I didn't want to engage in anymore. And um, and then the pain of possibly losing marriage, set of kids, uh, and an occupation most likely, and all of that, those pains uh, were very real. And everybody has their own set of those that bring them in. Um, do they get better? Yeah, they get dramatically better. Uh, it may or may not be in keeping relationships that we have. Um, some, most marriages stay together, some fall apart. Uh, it's not always a bad thing though. Uh, it's painful and it's hard on people, but it's not as painful as the world that was I was living in and, and creating uh, before I came in. And the pain uh, begins to diminish right away, uh, especially if I stop acting out. Because what happens is every time I was acting out, I was sort of resetting myself in terms of this disease. Going back to that <laughs> fundamental uh, addiction to um, arousing myself and, and trying to pursue orgasm and, uh, and then often engaging in elaborate conversations in my head uh, that always seemed to end up with me being the better person in the thing, fantasy in other words. And uh, as soon as I stopped resetting those all the time, uh, things began to get better. And I uh, knew in just the first couple of weeks, and I did my first step about two weeks into this program, um, I knew that uh, as I let go of this garbage, and I tell people the garbage that I had when I came in, none of it's gone away. It's all there. I, my image that I use mostly is it's all piled up on a big barge. And when I did my floating somewhere in the ocean, and when I did my first step, I cut the connection between me and that barge. All the crap, though, is still there, and every once in a while, somebody flies over it and comes back and says, yep, all that crap's still there, David. <laughs> they you know, say maybe terrible things about me or just ob observe it. In any case, I'm not connected to it anymore. And, uh, and that's the freedom, of course, uh, to be disconnected from that stuff. I just told a guy the other day uh, whose wife was very upset about something that he um, um, had said, and it, it was a fairly innocent remark in and of itself. 
And she was afraid it meant he was about to act out again. And I said, just tell her because it's the truth. The guy who did those things isn't around anymore. And I remember when my sponsor had to tell me that. I didn't come to that on my own. He said, David, uh, the man who did those things that you did, all of which you did, um, is not the guy you are today. And, and that was a sigh of relief um, that I didn't even know I needed until he said that. And yet it made all the difference. I think that's a basic beginning on those questions. I'll stop there. Thanks. And you actually, and you ended up touching on a few of the further topics as we go down the list. And um, you say people call you up saying, I, I can't get sober. And, and that's really that, you know, that's the next, the next section is how do I get sober? That came up a lot. How, how do I stop? What do I got to do? How do I get sober? I, you know, these, in my own experience, you know, this is behavior that I engaged in for nearly 30 years on a daily basis. What do I got to do to stop? How did you stop? Well, first of all, um, it's useful, I've found, to have a criteria for how do we know if I'm, how do I know if I'm doing something different, something healthy? And what has become clear to me over the years is that if I'm doing something healthy, it feels really, really, really awkward. And if I do something that's at all familiar, whether I'm happy or sad, angry or joyful, um, uh, then it's the same old, same old. And just dressed up, you know, uh, what do the people say? Lipstick on a pig or something like that. I don't know why they pick on pigs. Um, and, um, and so I just, a big chunk of sobriety and recovery for me has been my willingness to do things that are awkward, that really feel different. Uh, the other thing is, and my uh, second sponsor really drilled this into me, uh, this is a program of, in fact, two things he drilled into me. One is, this is a program of, of becoming teachable. Uh, and I have to stay in that state of being teachable uh, every day if I want serenity and, and freedom. And so knowing that I deliberately am in my intention and my desire and my willingness to stay teachable uh, has a lot to do with uh, getting sober. And being teachable mostly means is I don't have the answers. Uh, I need to be taught. And I need to be taught by not only people who've gone that way before, but people who have the same struggles, which means a newcomer might teach me as much as an old timer, uh, depending on what the issue is. Because um, I need to be able to see, oh, uh, if I do that, I'm going to have the same results that person has, and I don't want that. Um, the other thing my uh, sponsor taught me is it's a program of being comfortable. Uh, and that seems so unusual. The first time I heard it, I had that reaction uh, for a disease of self-centeredness and selfishness. How is being comfortable fit in? And I, what he was saying, though, has turned out to be absolutely true. And that is um, I need to learn how to be comfortable as who I actually am uh, rather than my fantasizing who I am. So who I actually am in terms of my career, in terms of my family, in terms of my friendships, uh, and then even more important, most importantly, who I actually am in terms of my makeup. And part of my makeup is that I have an allergy to lust. And, and when I engage in uh, lustful activities, and as I said, asking the world to be different than the way God's providing it, um, then it sets off this cascade of cravings. And I don't know where it's going to go and how long it's going to last and what I might do along the way. 
What has happened enough, though, over the years, both looking back before I came into SA and then during my time in SA for the last 32 and a little over three quarter years now, I guess, um, is that um, I, I get disturbed so fast, I become uncomfortable so quickly that I stop. And another thing my sponsor said was, David, always check your motives. And and I will, uh, at that point, stop and check my motives. And by the time I've gotten to the place of checking my motives, I've already realized, oh, I'm doing it again. <laughs> I'm, I'm caught up in something, something the way I want it to be, rather than just accepting it um, and accepting how I am in that situation. So uh, being teachable, uh, being comfortable, uh, doing things that are awkward. And then the easiest thing to do to get sober is to uh, just reconcile that I can't do it alone. And that's what sponsors are for. Uh, that's what the 12 steps are for. The 12 steps are our program of recovery. One thing that has fascinated me over the years, and of course, this probably um, probably some of my arrogance, I guess, is that people who work 12-step programs don't memorize the 12 steps. It's like well, wait a minute, <laughs> that's, that's our entire program. It's not even that many words. I'm not even sure there's 200 words involved. And um, I never actually counted, now I realize it. Um, and, <clears throat> and to accept that the 12 steps are our program of recovery. It's a we program. And if we do those things, they will work. Uh, now, we don't tell people at the beginning because it might discourage them. Uh, that we do those pro steps, uh, we do all 12 steps, and then we do all 12 steps, and then we do all 12 steps, and then we do, and uh, and we practice these principles in all of our affairs is what it says in step 12, and, and that turns out to be uh, accurate. Um, so the closer someone comes to doing what it says in the steps, and it's fashionable, and I use the word deliberately, uh, to slow walk the steps uh, in SA frequently. Um, I don't think it's a particularly useful thing to do. Um, it's not what I did myself. Um, as I said, I did my first step and it took two weeks to do it, um, two meetings, two, a week apart. Um, and um, within the first couple of weeks of being an essay, maybe three weeks, but I think it was two. And then um, I worked through uh, um, Step four, uh, by the following spring, I probably did kind of go slower in that than I needed to, partly because of my sponsor, but mostly because doing a fearless moral inventory was pretty scary to me. Um, I finally uh, did finish it, though. I used a workbook uh, that worked for me. I later did it the way that's in the AAV book, and that worked even better, and uh, shared it with my sponsor. And then... Um, Worked on steps six and seven, which is a sort of comes about as a part of doing steps four and five, and uh, started making my amends. And then I had to change sponsors, but that turned out to be useful because um, I did my eighth and ninth step amends um, uh, under his uh, guidance and criticisms. Uh, I tell people it's always important to write out amends because I've never yet had one. Uh, that stayed the same. And once my sponsor read it, he said, no, David, this is not okay. You're, you're not, what are you going to actually change? And how are you, are you really just taking responsibility for what you did? So, um, and then 10, 11, 12 um, are the everyday steps, continue to take personal inventory, uh, thought through con 
prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact, and then embracing that spiritual awakening, uh, having had a spiritual awakening. This program is so simple that people don't do it. And a guy yesterday on the meeting said exactly that. He said he was talking about a particular behavior. Of, it was communicating with other people in the fellowship. And he said, whenever I do it, it works really, really well. So I stopped doing it. <laughs> that's such a common, common it's, that's common in all 12-step programs. Uh, it certainly is true for us. Um, so I have to keep doing the things that work. Fortunately, as I said, when I came in, I had tried everything, so I didn't have any things uh, tucked in my back of my mind. Oh, if I only did this, uh, this would work to get me sober or help me get lead a new life or whatever. Um, and uh, I know a lot of people try things and forget that they've tried them and try them again. And over time, that gets better uh, if people stick around. Um, the um, one of the questions on the that is why could I not stop by my own willpower? Uh, it's because my willpower is so distorted by my self-centeredness. I want everything to be my way in at my time. Um, and I want to uh, minimize the consequences. I want to forget about the things that were humiliating or damaging uh, to myself or to other people. And, um, and my willpower is just not um, reliable. And what it says in the big book is what I've experienced myself. And that is, um, how can I best serve thee? Thy will not mine be done. That is the proper use of the will. Um, and when I see myself as turning each uh, day and each event over to the care of God, as I understand him, um, things are fine. And if I think David's got to make the decision and choose what to do, then things are not so fine. Um, I guess I'll stop there unless we want to pursue one piece of it. Well, yes. I mean, I think that it would be good to hear um kind of two-sided what what suggestions would you have or do you do you have for people that are frequently relapsing um and on the flip side of that are um any practical tools that you could give for how the hell am i going to stop well first of all for people who are frequently relapsing um the thing that this is my way of phrasing it i know um that I have seen people are most reluctant to give up is their uh, right to choose how they use their time. Um, that if I can choose to use my time for work, I, which I don't find it works all that well for sobriety, um, over everything else, I can choose to use my time for recreation, I can use to use my time for um, a pleasure, even if it's not sexual. Um, it, it takes all sorts of things. Um, it's certainly in, in couples learning how to get along together. Uh, it's when one or the other or both uh, think they have a right to choose how to use their time uh, that keeps things in turmoil. And uh, so that's for someone who's relapsing, that's often the thing I um, go after them. Uh, after the issue of staying simply sexually sober ourselves, no sex with ourselves, no sex with any partner other than the spouse, and progressive victory over lust. After that, the most difficult thing for us uh, to deal with, in my experience, um, is my head just went blank, um, is sleep, lack of sleep. That's, I was probably had lack of sleep. That's what's going on. Um, 
lack of sleep will set all of us up to uh, be prisoners of lust uh, just because of our physiology, not because we're right or wrong or even sexaholics. It's just uh, something that happens to people um, and it creates a desperation. And then, of course, um, uh, my experiences in relationships um, getting priorities out of whack. Um, my understanding of the things that work for me are to uh, have my first relation connection, my first priority be my relationship with God and, uh, and the 12 steps, because I view those as identical, because that's the purpose of the 12 steps is that spiritual awakening. And so I have to have those be first. It's not because David is some goody two-shoes, it's because I know if I don't do that, I'm going to trash the rest anyway. Um, maybe right away, maybe slowly over time, uh, it's going to happen. So when someone um, wants to you know, stop relapsing and, and find some sobriety, that's one of the things in my experience they're going to have to do is have that be first priority. That can really interfere with a lot of other stuff that we like to do, that I like to use my time this way. Uh, I like to, I have a guy right now who's trying to get sober off looking up sports scores <laughs> because he goes nuts when he does it. And, um, and the priority of working the steps and the relationship with God first is, this, is the antidote to that that works in my experience. The easiest way to experience that antidote, by the way, in my experience, is gratitude. Um, gratitude puts me in conscious contact with God faster than anything else. Um, and uh, that's another topic. I won't go too far down that path right now. Um, and then um, the second priority, uh, in my experience, needs to be family. Uh, and family changes over time. If we have kids, they get added into family. If they grow up and leave, and they leave the family. Um, if there's uh, some people, of course, it remains single. So the family becomes maybe the SA family. Um, it's important to have a group that we feel a part of, maybe more than one, but at least one. And 12-step uh, groups provide that. And um, so to have that be the second priority, that sounds so simple. And yet, in fact, uh, when I talk to people and literally look at how I made my own life choices, uh, choosing to keep family solidly in second position has been one of the harder things to do. Uh, it's so tempting to be distracted by money, by prestige, by uh, collegial uh, admiration. Uh, and, um, and if I think that I'm working a good spiritual program, which maybe I am, um, and then I get distracted by the things in the third priority, uh, it's really easy to neglect the family. So uh, I, Often I'm listening for that with people. Uh, I sponsor, of course, mostly men. Rarely uh, I've sponsored a woman. And with men, I find one of the most common things I have to do is to uh, really nudge them into being actual partners in the marriage uh, rather than um, people who are told what to do. And, and if she didn't tell me to do it, I don't have to do it. Well, that logic doesn't work, actually. And being a true partner uh, is uh, a critical element. And and I, I was just the other day, as I was for the thousandth and thousandth time, I've done it for many years, uh, cleaning the toilet. Um, I thought, how many guys have I had to encourage them to learn how to clean the toilet? Because that's just a part of being a partner. 
and sometimes we arrange for someone else to do it, like if someone to come in and clean the house, that's fine, of course. But uh, it's important to be a partner. The third priority in my experience is then everything else. Uh, occupations, recreations, friendships. Uh, I really appreciate how much people get out of going out to uh, socialize after an, a meeting. Uh, I think it's a great thing. It also can easily become a substitute for the first two priorities. And, um, and that doesn't, doesn't work uh, in my experience. So getting the priorities straight um, is important. And I can't do any of that on my own. If I could do it on my own, as I said, I wouldn't need SA. I have to um, work the steps, go to meetings, trust God, and talk to my sponsor. And you've often said to me uh, that it's the easier, softer way. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the steps, it says it there and how it works. And it's true. This is the easier, softer way. Um, and I tell people sometimes it's part of being comfortable, actually, um, that this is a program about uh, being lazy. Um, I don't want to work so hard. So I will have to say I was terrified of losing my sobriety for the first probably seven to 10 years. Um and I'm still, I don't want to lose my sobriety now. I'm just not terrified of it. Uh, and uh, <coughs> and um, so as that ebbs, that terror ebbs and becomes less of an instant thing than um, really just enjoying the benefits of serenity and freedom, uh, the easier, softer way uh, gets easier over time. I have all sorts of things uh, that were real issues for me. For instance, if my wife and I were sexual I would be a mess in terms of lust and sexual images and, and noticing women and stuff like that for 72 hours afterwards. Um, 72 hours isn't original with me. I've just found it really fits. And, um, and I just resigned myself that that was going to always be the case. And then uh, somewhere around year 10, it went away. And it hasn't been the case for, for 22 years. Uh, and um, so things like that, things really do change. and. A lot of the times uh, I find out things have changed because I'm sitting in a meeting and somebody shares something that they're struggling with. And I suddenly realize, oh, that hasn't been a problem for me for a long time. I used to have chronic depressions. Um, they were sort of episodic every sort of six to eight weeks. Um, I would have one. And then I'd been in the program about three years when I realized the depressions had left and they've never returned. I had one short spell where I used antidepressants, but it was for a situational thing more than anything. And uh, that was a brief period. And other than that, it's just hasn't been an issue. Thank you. So the, the next uh, section is all about step one. Um, questions like, uh, am I a bad person? <laughs> Why can't I act out and still be normal? Um, how do I know that I'm really a powerless sexaholic? I mean, that's a question that we all ask ourselves and probably fight with that. Um, or, well, obviously, as you remind me all the time, we quit fighting. So one of the things of accepting the first step is to quit fighting that question. But, you know, how do I know that I'm a powerless sexaholic and not one of those guys that you mentioned before that just doesn't, you know, doesn't need to, uh, doesn't really, isn't really an addict? Well, taking off on that exact question, um, what if someone thinks they don't fit? The, the AA Big Book has the same situation in it uh, in Chapter 3, and that is um, if you think um, that you're not a, a, a problem with alcohol, that's fine. Uh, try some controlled drinking. 
and let's see how it goes. Uh, you know, for a period of time, uh, just take only one drink. <laughs> and, uh, and we have our own variations on that. If you think you're not a sexaholic, that's great. Cause I wouldn't wish this disease on anybody. It's, it's, it just takes over every piece of my being and destroys relationships. And so if someone's not a sexaholic, I'm just happy for them. And, um, and if they think that they don't need this program, fine. Uh, one of the things the AAB book makes very clear, and I'm grateful for it, uh, is that we should never say anything that would keep someone from coming back when they're ready, if they need us. And I think that's true for SA too, um, coming back when we're ready. And um, if someone's not ready, just you know, say we're here and we'll try to keep it going. Uh, that's uh, one of the things we do is keep the meetings going. And if it's the place for you to be, come back. And we have many people who've left and never come back, of course, uh, and many people who've left and do come back. And uh, whenever they come back, I have the same response, which is, wow, I'm glad to see you. Uh, and uh, if I knew them well, I'd say I've missed you. If I didn't know them all that well, i just say I'm glad you're back. Um, the uh, 12 and 12 does say, and I agree, believe it's in step six, might be in step four. I always, I always have to look. Anyway, um, it does say that we need to work step one perfectly. Um, if there's any conditions, any limitations on step one, we're, we're going to have trouble. We admitted we were powerless over lust and our lives had become unmanageable. And, and it's initially just an acceptance. Um, of that and it is tough i i totally understand that it's tough it was tough for me uh and yet i didn't have any choice uh that last line in the uh the problem or this the solution uh sexaholics anonymous is for those who know they have oh what is a sexaholic excuse me sexaholics anonymous is for those who know they have no other option but to stop and their own light and self-interest must tell them this and that's the state I was in when I came in. I didn't know how wonderful that was. I just thought I was feeling pretty awful. I wanted to do something about it. Uh, but in fact, um, I did um, know that I had no other option but to stop. That what I was doing, first of all, had been labeled by that therapist correctly. Secondly, I identified with it. That happened at the first meeting. And third, the only thing to do was to stop. There's a lot of dispute in the mental health field about abstinence, uh, whether it's abstinence from drugs or from gambling or money or sex in our case. Um, but it, uh, abstinence works for people who are addicts. Um, it's not an end point, it's just a beginning. Uh, it have no other option but to stop. And their own enlightened self-interest must tell them this. And, and that's, um, that's just fundamental. Uh, but it does a get a bit more confusing for what? for uh, when, when bringing up, you know, abstinence from sex. Sex is, you know, we're not looking for total abstinence from sex, right? So for the sexaholic, it's it's a little bit more confusing because we're looking for abstinence from the sexual acting out behaviors and from the lust. Sex becoming truly optional is what abstinence looks like functionally for us because having a, right. a relationship is very healthy. As we say, sometimes couples need to have a period of abstinence to let the relationship reset. Uh, people can get caught up in that, of course. That's a problem. Um, and, you know, there are many problems around sex. There's nothing new, as Bill Wilson says. Um, and um, 
But in fact, yes, uh, for a couple, a uh, married couple being having a sexual relationship, I, I'd say healthy sexuality is a couple sexual behavior that allows them to feel closer to each other. And it might be nothing more than a gentle touch on a shoulder or a kiss or a hug, or it might actually be intercourse or anything in between. Um, it might be just going out to dinner together and getting away from the kids or something. Um, this is all touching on a, a few questions and, and, and but, a little bit further on about relationships, but just to stay, to stay on the first step for a moment. To stay on step one, too. Sure. Go ahead. What? No, uh, in terms of step one, um, like what, what what does it mean? This uh, the idea of an allergy can be very confusing for someone walking in the room because if I have an allergy to strawberries, I just don't eat strawberries. So how is it that I'm allergic to to last yet I keep on going back for more? Well, there are several things in there. Uh, first of all, what we're talking about is what I want to talk about anyway, which is the second part of step one. Uh, and that our lives have become unmanageable. Um, and the allergy is the unmanageability. Um, and that is the things that happen. The, the most, the, the simplest way to, to view it is I engage in doing things that I had told myself I wasn't going to do, or that I had promised I wouldn't do, or uh, that I don't like myself when I do them. Um, and then uh, unmanageability also, of course, uh, involves putting relationships at risk. Um, Sometimes for diseases or legal consequences, but most often just the relationship is devoid of respect for the reality of the partner uh, and the other person. Uh, I have a, a guy right now I've been talking to quite a bit who, uh, well, I tell everybody, uh, and this is on manageability and practice, uh, the most dangerous words that can come into our minds, my mind, uh, and our minds and my experience are the words I can handle it. Um, because those words only come into our minds when it's not true. <laughs> if we can actually handle it, we just do it. Um, and if we're telling ourselves, I can handle this, and he was keeping secrets around looking at pornography and around financial situations that affected the relationship. And uh, and it's been uh, devastating to her because uh, she says, if you lie to me about that, um, his wife, if you lie to me about that, what else are you lying about? And, and, uh, and that's what unmanageability looks like in, in practice. Um, the disease, the idea of a disease and having allergies uh, is the closest analogy we can come. The only other one that's, and it actually has the same elements uh, that I like is diabetes. And that is, if I have um, an allergy, like the strawberries, as you mentioned, or if I have, a, um, if I'm a diabetic, if I have insulin uh, supply and management problem, um, then if I accept that and live my life accordingly, uh, avoid strawberries and, and anything that has strawberries in it, and then also um, don't you know check my uh, blood sugar regularly and, and take insulin if I need it. Um, if I do those things, I can lead a perfectly healthy life. If I don't do those things, there are totally predictable consequences. Uh, there's anaphylactic reactions. Um, that people can have to strawberries and, and of course the hives and whatever else goes with that. And then with diabetes, uh, there's actually going into comas and, and when sexaholic goes into some kind of zone, uh, trance of sexual acting out, it's the same thing as a diabetic going in my experience as a diabetic going into a coma, either from too much sugar or, or uh, too much insulin, either one will do it. 
And um, so that's why the disease model appeals to me because it, it's descriptive of what happened. It also, and this was, you mentioned this in passing earlier and I hadn't come back to it. Um, it gets away from the context of being bad or good. Uh, my sponsor really ran this over and over again and it comes out of AA. We're not bad people trying to become good people. We are very sick people trying to get well. And um, and again, it's an image and a way of approaching this compulsive behavior that works. Um, I, I have um, experience in the mental health field. I also have experience in 12-step recovery, of course. And in my experience, there's very little, in my experience, and I know many people disagree with this, um, there's very little in the mental health field that actually addresses the compulsivity of addictions in an effective way, other than um, a spiritual recovery, which is a recovery 24-7, that it's always present. It doesn't depend on having a therapist who's available or taking a medication on time or things like that. Uh, spiritual recovery is uh, constant. Is a reorientation of our entire lives. As Dr. Paul said uh, in AA, uh, AA stands for altered attitudes. And, and that's uh, what a spiritual awakening, a spiritual recovery uh, offers. And also, if we don't have it, we just get stuck. Um, on things. The disease model um, and using spiritual healing uh, works, uh, in my experience. Rarely have we seen a person fail. And um, and the being bad and then exercising more willpower, uh, finding a, a magic uh, medicine or a magic behavior. Um, our founder, Roy, was really uh, vulnerable to that. He really, he hated to see people suffer. He was very compassionate that way. And he was always looking for a way of working the program that would work every time. And he didn't come up with one and neither of any of the rest of us. Uh, what we have found, though, is uh, we can uh, together uh, support and identify and work with each other, and we all do get better. Uh, and it's very strange. The allergic reaction is uh, the unmanageability in practice, as I said, uh, starting to do things that I said I'd never do, uh, starting to become the kind of person I don't want to become. That's the allergic reaction. Thanks, David. Um, so the next topic is a really, it's a hot topic. It's its around surrender. And what, you know, what is surrender? Walking into these rooms, for many of us, including myself, uh, I'd never really, I mean, I understood the word surrender in, when an army goes and surrenders but that's as far as they ever took it and i'm told that i have to surrender what does that actually mean how how do i just how do you describe it how do you surrender how do i stay surrendered uh what does it mean to surrender to god versus fighting how do i surrender my self-will all these questions came up a lot well that's the core that, that's right at the core of our program um the antidote to selfishness, self-centeredness is surrender, is to moving out of that self-centered place uh, and isolating myself from other people, seeing myself as just a part of, of the whole of, of people. Um, and it's, um, it, it's an ongoing proposition. So many of the questions, um, how do I surrender, uh, is as good a summary of all the questions that you just said as any. Um, it automatically has the person asking that question in that way, and I, this sounds harsh, and I don't mean it to, um, 
uh, has automatically ruled this, sort of taken themselves out of the likelihood of success <laughs> of enjoying the fruits of surrender because um, it's changing the I to a we. So how do we surrender works just fine. How do I surrender, uh, in my experience, doesn't work. And that seems kind of hard-assed, I know. Uh, it's just uh, the experience I've seen, and it's what I have to do myself. Um, and the most common uh, form of being clear that I need to surrender is uh, those words, I can handle it. Um, it means uh, move over God, move over wife, move over coworkers, move over friends, whatever. I've got this one. And uh, and for many people, maybe that works. I don't know. I just know it doesn't work for me. Uh, not if I want serenity and freedom and the benefits of this program. Um, it's God as we understand him. Uh, there is, no, and it's we understanding, not I understanding. I know we often change the pronouns. It just makes a big difference. And um, and so finding a God to whom I'm willing, or God with whom, that's a better word to say it, I say, with whom I'm willing to surrender is really important. Uh, nobody comes into Sexaholics Anonymous with a relationship with God that works. Uh, is this really turned out to be important to me to remember for myself and to realize for other people? And finding... Um, a God, however understood, it might be a conventional God in someone's own religious tradition, or it might be a God that's just the meetings and the literature um, and the other people in the fellowship. It might be something in nature, um, although that's a little harder for most people because, uh, let's say, you're attached to a mountain. Uh, it's as sort of your higher power. Okay, that's fine. Um having that communication with the mountain can be more difficult than it is with another person or or with uh, an understanding of the conventional understanding of God. It still is a matter of what works though. That's that's what matters. And um and just as as I said a while ago, um my sponsor really said, David, the only thing you have to know about your higher power is it's not you. And so if I turn my will and my life over to God as I understand it, the step three thing, um, then things begin to get better. And that's what I actually look for. This sounds really woo-woo. Um, I'm not a big fan of woo-woo. On the other hand, this is exactly my experience. And that is, if I do surrender to God, whatever issue I'm dealing with, doesn't matter whether it's fear, whether it's hope, whether it's you know, really difficult situations, whether it's something really joyful, doesn't matter. Um, if I truly surrender to my all of that to God, and the easiest way to do that, by the way, is so simple, we don't do it, which is to say, thank you, God, for everything. And when I say everything, I mean like 100%, not 99, and certainly not 50%. Either. Anyway, if I say, thank you, God, for everything, the results of that, and this is the woo-woo part, are immediate. I tell someone, if you had to wait five seconds for results, then you're still holding on to something. That sounds bizarre. <laughs> it sounds bizarre when I say it, hear myself saying it. And yet it's exactly my experience. Uh, the relief that comes from working the program um, and turning my will and my life over to God as I understand God today, uh, that um, the relief is immediate. And, and for a whole bunch of reasons for it in my experience, but the biggest one is if when I'm caught up in my selfishness, I'm separated from other people. And if I'm separated from other people, I start getting scared immediately. 
that's totally normal. I may or may I may cover that up. By the way, I can always tell when someone's really shy. At least this has worked for me, uh, and that is they'll be right in my face. They'll be just <laughs> acting anything but shy, and it always means behind them there's this phenomenal shyness. Well, it's kind of that way in our program too, uh, where people will cover uh, that fear of separation and isolation uh, with a lot of a lot of behaviors uh, that sort of distract one. Uh, th- nonetheless, the relief that comes when I let go of all that and just say, "Oh, I guess I'm here doing what I'm supposed to do because this is what I'm supposed to be doing right now," and all of a sudden it's like, oh. and as I said, until um, someone tries it, they think I'm being silly, probably. And yet, um, I think that myself sometimes. And yet, in fact, uh, it's instant. So, um, how do I fully yeah. surrender my self-will is one of the questions. And and the only answer to that that I found works is that I have to just uh, surrender on a minute-by-minute basis, um, hour-by-hour, day-by-day. Uh, after a while, it becomes a habit. And I would say more of the time than not, it's a habit. I still have my moments when I get grumpy. Oh, I don't want to do this. Uh, and yet, in fact, uh, when I let go and let God, it's just like, oh, okay, I guess I'll just do it. Thank you. Um, and the next section is around complacency. How do I never become complacent? How do you combat complacency? So, first of all, the big book says after resentments, the number two problem we run into is complacency. So it's a big deal. Uh, and I have recast complacency. It works for me anyway. I think it works for most people as drifting, that we all drift off the path. Um, people who um, engage in sailing boats on waters, but you really find it even driving a car on a road. Uh, drifting just happens. Um, as life goes on, as the wheels turn, as the boat goes through the water and there's wind pressure and, and water currents and whatever. And um, I tell people, because it's my experience, drifting is not the problem. Drifting is just going to happen. Uh, the big deal is, do we get back on course? And the two ways we do that is, one, be honest that I'm drifting, oh, and as I said, I can handle it. It's the most common way to recognize that right away. Um, well, that's actually the most common way to recognize drifting right away is disturbance. When I'm feeling uneasy, uh, restless, irritable, and discontent are the adjectives uh, in the big book. When I have any of those feelings uh, or halt, hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, uh, it, I'm drifting. That's not the problem. <laughs> the problem is what do I do next? Do I get back on course or not? And, and that's the answer to complacency that I found works for me is to first be honest that I'm drifting and secondly, do whatever I need to get back on course. What does that mean? Well, it means a lot of things. It means picking up the phone. Uh, it can mean uh, writing a negative gratitude list, being grateful for the things that I don't like that are going on and what's God trying to teach me or remind me. It can be just getting on my knees and saying, God, I can't handle this. I got to give it back to you. I'm just, it's overwhelming for me. Um, It can be getting to a meeting. Um, It can be uh, sitting down and reading the grapevine or the uh, essay or or essay, uh, uh, bi-monthly almost (laughs) magazine. Um, Anything to help me get back on course by identifying with other people. In other words, by 
taking myself in my selfish centeredness and I'm drifting and putting myself in reference to other people, the we, and recorrecting my course uh, in that way and, and just getting back on the path. Um, people uh, say, well, why can't I just stay on the path all the time? Because it's not on the list of choices. We all are doing things uh, in our lives. Um, we're going down life's road and there's, you know, things that come up and opportunities that come up and, and uh, places to be of service and places just to do things that are fun for the family and whatever. And, you know, we go off to have a wonderful day with the family at the beach and then someone appears in really skimpy clothes or lack of clothes altogether. And that just happens. That's not the problem. <laughs> That's life. What does matter for us as addicts is getting back on the course. Um, it, one of the things it says, and this is really important for complacency for me uh, and drifting, is that I do a contract for sobriety every morning. Um, if I don't do it in the morning, I get reminded as the day goes on, oh, you didn't do your contract, David, because I'll be disturbed. I mostly do it every morning. And, um, and I commit myself to one more day of sexual sobriety. No sex with myself, no sex with any partner other than my wife, unless we're in an absence period, then I just put no sex with myself, no sex with any partner uh, from now until, and then I named the 24 hours ahead whenever that ends. So this morning, it was about 7.40. So from now until 7.40 tomorrow morning uh, is what I said. And um, and when I uh, renew that contract, then I have a whole bunch of things I say, I surrender my right to. Uh, and I, uh, it's, I feel like it's defining my corral, the area where I'm safe. And I check my boundaries every morning, be sure they're okay. And, um, and then I start off by doing uh, my contract by doing the serenity prayer and the third step prayer. And I end my contract by doing the seventh step prayer and fairly regularly, not every day, the 11th step prayer. Um, so those are the things that sort of reset me on complacency every morning. And then if the days without any difficulty during the day, I just do it again. I can always roll the 24 hours along. So I do my contract again, only I extend the 24 hours to the next from now until five o'clock this afternoon or whatever time it would be. Uh, uh, I think that's a very big tool. Um, and a lot of these sections are, are, you know, we could do an entire podcast on this next section, you know, about relationships right. and, and our time is going on. So we'll um, uh, j just touch on it a little bit. And, and you know, uh, I mean, each of these questions in terms of relationships and marriage is, are just so big. But, you know, in a few sentences, you know, how, I, I mean, these questions, how to have a healthy relationship. I mean, that's a massive topic. Um, how to have sex in the bedroom without lust. Um, a little bit of experience on these, on these concepts. So first of all, any sexual behavior that helps a couple feel closer, a married couple, um, is fine in my experience. I'm, not everybody agrees with me. I'm well aware. Nonetheless, that's my experience. Uh, and um, what my sponsor taught me is if I use the third step prayer when my wife and I are being sexual, it'll probably be fine. And I do that most of the time. I did it a lot more for the first 10 or 15 years than I do it now, um, just because it's, I'm more habitually stay present than I used to. Um, so I just don't need it as much, I guess. I don't know. I'm willing to do it. That's not the issue. I, we were intimate a few days ago and I remember the third step prayer was a critical part of it. That's fine. That's good. Um, and then, uh, 
we went, as my sponsor Jess used to point out, we go for the connection that has the magic because it bypasses intimacy and true union. Um, and he said, David, we're terrified of intimacy and true union. So the relationship with our spouse and sexual relationship in particular, uh, by definition, uh, Jess would say, and I agree with him, uh, is something we're terrified of. And, um, and we go for the connection that has the magic because that overwhelms us with an adrenaline rush, with a sexual arousal rush, whatever kind of rush we can get, because it bypasses intimacy and true union. It takes me off into myself. Again, I have, I'm a sexaholic. That's what I do. <laughs> That's not the problem. It's like the drifting. The problem is being honest about it. Oh, there I go, trying to uh, go for um, you know, fantasy and, and just come back. And the third step prayer is the easiest way back. Or just God help me works too. Thursday prayers a little better, um, and um, you know I I tell people Roy came up with this too. It's in the White Book uh, that marriage is one of our best chances to grow up, uh, to learn how to really be a partner in life, to learn how to really accept the life, the world on the world's terms instead of on David's terms, uh, and and so uh, the likelihood that a marriage can stay together is very high. If both people are willing, not everybody. I mean, certainly addicts may not be willing. That happens. But it's also possible that our spouses aren't willing. Um, my wife is willing. As I said, we've been married 44 years, um, which I'm very grateful. And um, the um, actually, it's 45. <laughs> I need to index one year. I just realized. Um, and um, we. Um, most marriages can stay together if if someone if a spouse is willing to get involved in Essanon, it makes it easier or Al-Anon. Uh, but in fact, uh, they don't have to. What they do have to be is willing to work this program. Uh, I know because she tells me my wife hears the things I say to other people, and even though she doesn't necessarily involved in twelve step recovery herself, she quotes them to other people and and uses them herself uh, in a way that works, and that works just as well. Uh, so that's on that subject. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's it, it's a, it's definitely a big topic, and the next topic is obviously even bigger. But I'm going to pull out one question from all of them, which is uh, on the topic of the higher power and a spiritual awakening. And I'm just going to ask, you know, for you, what does a spiritual awakening mean for you? Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. So is what step 12 says. So one thing I experience is, am I, am I grounded in the fellowship and in sobriety and recovery today? And am I cleaning up any messes I've made that I'm aware of? Um, and uh, am I uh, willing to be um, follow uh, my understanding of God's, God's guidance in my life today? And and when I do those things, and I get to do them every day, uh, I, the spiritual awakening is seeing, and this is a more direct answer to your question, the spiritual awakening is a sense of belonging, a sense of being a person who just has his part to play, in my case, his or her as general, and, um, and I do what I can do today, and that's enough, and and to accept that that's what I get done in a day is enough. Now, sometimes what I get done a day is not what others maybe were expecting of me. 
and I have to deal with their disappointment or their frustration with me or something. And I get a chance to become teachable. It's a chance to become teachable. It's a chance to adjust myself to the way the world actually is at that moment, whether I'm happy about it or not. And the way the world is might be my own limits, my own failures, my own distracting myself. That's okay. And then, as I said, drifting is normal and just get back on a path where I can be useful. Thanks. So um, the next section is all about long-term sobriety. Um, um, and I guess, you know, we know that there's, there's, a, there's a famous comment, a statement which says that sober isn't well. Um, what, what does sobriety mean for you? Um, another question that, you know, um, why do you still need to be in SA? That's something that people often think about, you know. Um, I think for me, the answer would be that um, I have to give away what I gave. This is a spiritual program. Um, but yeah, what 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 does what sobriety mean for you? And um, and what does emotional sobriety mean for you? A lot of a, 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 there's a lot of talk about emotional sobriety, which is kind of the next level. So the why do I still need to be in SA is actually the easier question, uh, and that is uh, it's like a diabetic saying, "Why do I have to still be a diabetic?" Yeah. Forget it. And why do I still have an allergy? Forget it. I have it. <laughs> Either I accept that or I don't. People live their life often not accepting who they actually are, and then they have they make life difficult for themselves and others. I'm just not willing to do that anymore. And one day at a time, uh, I don't have to live that life in this program. Uh, the um, what does sobriety mean to me today? Uh, sobriety is. Um, the doorway. No, that's not accurate. Sobriety is a byproduct in my experience of my relationship with God, as I understand it. My experience is what sobriety means to me is it's a byproduct of my relationship with a higher power, with God, as I understand God. And that is so important. As I've said, I kind of said this earlier, but not this directly. If someone could choose to be sober, they don't need essay. Um, and I'll have more power to them. I'm not negative about that. I'm just grateful, happy for them. Um, if uh, they can't choose to be sober, my best, my best use of my willpower, my desire, my focus, whatever my promises, list of promises, um, to stay sober, and they don't work, then I need a program, and that's what that's what SA provides for me. But what SPA provides is the 12 steps, and the 12 steps are developing a relationship with a power greater than myself, namely not David, uh, anything else. God as I understand God. And, and in order to be useful, in order to work that program, um, one of the things that happens is I, sobriety is a byproduct. Uh, I don't want to act out with myself because I, I'm totally not present. I don't want to act out with any partner than my spouse because of the damage I did and, and that I can't stop once I start. As I said, it's, it just gets worse over time. And, um, and I'm often astonished by that. Nonetheless, it does. And um, so um, the things that, and progressive victory over lust, lust is separating myself from my higher power, saying David knows better. So um, that sobriety is just a byproduct of all of the those things uh, being left cast aside and saying, okay, God, in fact, this is literally, I haven't said this <laughs> in talking right now, I realize. Uh, I literally, at some point every morning, say, God, whatever you want to happen in my life today is fine by me. And that's 
sobriety will come out of that because God has no interest in my being drunk because I don't pay attention to him. Thanks, David. So just a couple of questions around the steps. Um, interesting questions. You know, uh, how do I know if I did the steps correctly? And then following on from that, what do I do after I've completed the 12 steps? Uh, two things. One, uh, as the 12 and 12 says, uh, the only step we work perfectly, and, and that's just we can't have any reservations about it. That's really all it is, uh, is step one, admitting I'm powerless over lust. And we admitted we were uh, our lives have become unmanageable. And all the other 11 steps, we just wing. We do the best we can do that day. Um, at the same time, um, in my experience, we have to do all of them. We have to do all of them every day. And uh, that's turns that sounds like a big deal. How do I do all 12 steps every day? Um, it actually is very simple because they're all bound together. They all they function together as one unit. And so if I do any one step, I'm working all of them. Uh, what my sponsor taught me is, David, you should always know what step you're working on. And uh, the most likely one to be working on every day in this program after with comfortable sobriety and, and being around a while is step 11. So just use prayer and meditation, improve my conscious contact with God as I understand him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us, get, get out of the, uh, the eye there, and the power to carry that out. If I'm doing that, uh, I'm actually working all 12 steps uh, to some degree. It's This is not an exercise in, in exhausting ourselves or an exercise in checking off all the right boxes every day. It's an exercise in and letting go and letting God, as we say in our little expression, and uh, and to just not try to be in charge of things that I wasn't in charge of in the first place. Oh, completing the 12 steps. Sure, complete them every day, as long as you do it every day. It doesn't matter. <laughs> That's the easiest way to do it. Right. Just keep going back over them. Keep living them. Um Interesting question about meetings. You know, what should I share about in a meeting? Um, I, this guy I was telling you about earlier, who uh, is addicted to looking up sports scores, um, I also said to him oh, a week or so ago. Um, he asked the same question, identical question, and I said, "It's very simple. You close your eyes and think, what is it I don't want to share?' <laughs> That's it." <laughs> And that's the best thing to share in a meeting is the things I don't want to share um, because um, it's it, that's the I can handle it in practice. Uh, I'm thinking if I keep this piece of my life, I've had people, I'll be on a phone call with them, let's say, um, and they'll tell me something really, really difficult that's going on in their life. Well, actually, let me reverse this. I have a phone call with them and they say, oh, things are fine. I'm doing okay. And then I go to a meeting and they happen to be there. And they share some really difficult situation that's going on. And uh, and I'm always just perplexed by that. Uh, not that I have to be the one to hear it, uh, but that they have gotten into this sort of pattern of not sharing uh, just as casually as possible. The first time uh, my sponsor asked me to start sharing uh, that uh, uh, spanking and bondage fantasies were a part of my um uh, how I aroused myself, and um, and boy, I didn't want to do that. Oh, I shared it at a meeting. I remember the meeting where I don't remember exact when it happened, but I remember the meeting and the feeling I had. 
And it happens to be a particular uh, building in Nashville that um, where a lot of meetings are held. And um, and I boy, I didn't want to do that. And then after a while, uh, it just became, yeah, uh, I have blue eyes and I have fantasies like that. And that's just the way they are. And that's what happens when I share at meetings. Uh, if I share the stuff I don't want to share, eventually it just becomes a description of, yeah, that's part of the way David is. And this is a fellowship where that's what people do. And that's I done. And, you know, it's very unusual for anybody to come up with something really, un really novel in a meeting, um, almost never. Um, and, uh, and yet the person who has to get used to it, get through the awkwardness in my case, uh, is me and uh, things get better. That's great. Thank you so much. So uh, I want to finish this fireside chat that we've been having uh, over this warm fire with these uh, three, <laughs> with these three questions. Um, uh, I think that they were kind of really interesting key questions that came up from everything that uh, that I'm gonna I'm gonna be asking every person that we have this chat with. So the first question is, what is the most important thing for you in the program? To my great surprise, on a daily basis, the most important thing in the program is if I do say, God, whatever have happened in my life today is fine by me, I have wonderful days. And they just come <coughs> and nights. They come one after the other. And, um, and that's that serenity and freedom and practice, all of which I could throw away at any time. And yet, um, one day at a time, I don't. And I just say, okay, God, let's see what happens. Wow. And the second question is, have the 12 promises come true in your life? So the promises are after step nine or in the middle of step nine in the AA big book. And uh, they have all come true. Uh, I could work, go down through each one. That's not an issue. I don't need to do that. I'm willing. I just don't need to do it right now. Um, they have all come true in my life and most of them every day. Uh, a couple of them jump out at me more powerfully just because of my own makeup. Uh, fear of people and economic insecurity. And that's that uh, fear of intimacy and true union. Uh, and and fear that uh, I won't have enough to uh, take care of myself, to provide uh, for my family and myself. And, um, and, and to really, um, that promise has not only come true, I just, I get to revisit it regularly. Uh, uh, and uh, and if I'm scared of something uh, in my life, it's almost always revolves around either fear of people or economic insecurity. And yet all of them have come true. Uh, God will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Um, and uh, all the other promises, yes, they have. And they continue to. I Actually, we read them just often enough that I get to assess that they're all still working. That's great. And finally, What's the biggest gift that you've received from recovery in SA? Not having to do this alone. Um, I get emotional even thinking about it. Um, at my first or second meeting, I realized I just never had to be alone again unless I chose to be. And, um, and not having to be alone anymore um, <coughs> since August 2nd, 1988, and then also uh, on a daily basis, I just never have to be alone. And that's, I would say, is the greatest gift. Wow. So thank you so much for, for taking out the time. Thank you so much for taking out the time to, uh, to, to have this chat with, with me and with the rest of SA. 
and um, I appreciate it, and I appreciate you immensely. Um, it was important for me to do the first fireside chat with you, my beloved sponsor. We will let that cat out of the bag, and <laughs> um, and um, yeah, and just yeah, really, thank you, David. You're welcome, and thank us. I'm glad we get to do it together. Thank you for listening to today's SA Fireside Chat. We hope you've enjoyed listening and gained as much as we have producing. Anything you've heard on this podcast is strictly the opinion of the individual speaker. The principles of SA are found in our 12 steps and 12 traditions. If you have any questions you would like to pose to today's speaker or a burning desire to reach out to them, you can write to me at daniel at safireside.com. Remember, SA is self-supporting through its own contributions. You can donate to Seventh Tradition by going to sa.org forward slash donate. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast or visit safireside.com to hear all the previous Fireside chats, as well as the future ones as soon as they're released. May God bless you and keep you until then.